Hello everyone. First of all, I have a cold, so my voice is just going to be uh, so sexy this week. And secondly, a word of warning. This week it's, uh, it's going to get a little grisly, a little gruesome. We're going down to Tasmania and back nearly 200 years to talk about one of the most macabrely fascinating stories in our history. At the time, it caused such disgusted, horrified outrage that tales of what had happened couldn't even be confined to our shores, as most things usually were, and travelled all across the world to be printed in newspapers from London to New York. There have been multiple movies, documentaries, books and even songs made about what has happened, and over the passing centuries, this story has settled like a shadow in the bleakest parts of the Australian psyche. I'm talking, of course, about those convicts that ate each other. Now, there's a very common misconception about the point of transportation. Most people, usually British, they quite brilliantly say, oh, it was to punish them. We sent the convicts to Australia because they were all thieves and we needed to punish them. If they wanted to punish them, they could have just left them in England. No, the point of transportation was to have an indentured workforce that would work on government-owned and privately-owned lands. This was nothing new, it had been done before. It was just done on a much larger scale this time. It's hard to convince a group of people to make a 250-day journey by boat cramped in the bottom of it with no chance of ever going home again and almost no way of contacting loved ones once you're out there, as most of them were illiterate. All to build a new nation on behalf of a group of people who were willfully going to abuse you the whole time. There's not a lot of people who would volunteer to do that. So, it's easier if they don't have a choice. Transportation was a government-run, very well-organised labour system that moved about 165,000 people across the globe. And this, of course, was not without its problems. The main one being, how do you control this mass amount of people who all have a fairly understandable grudge? What more can you threaten them with? Well, further transportation. There's always a deeper level of hell, and back in the 1800s, that level was known as Van Diemen's Land. A small, heart-shaped island sitting to the south of the main continent, which to this day boasts the cleanest air and the freshest water in the world, and some of the most inhospitable terrain ever seen. Van Diemen's Land was the prison island next to Australia's prison island, where the hardest repeat offenders were sent, those who were insolent and insubordinate, to whom even flogging provided no great deterrent. And once there, if they still proved themselves to be difficult, they would be removed from Hobart Town and sent to one of the most notorious penal settlements in history, Sarah Island. A tiny speck of an island that sits within Macquarie Harbour on the west coast of Van Diemen's Land, where the roaring 40s blasting winds from the south still make navigation in and out of the harbour an incredibly difficult feat. While the entrance is now more neatly known as Macquarie Heads, many still refer to it as the convicts did. Hell's Gates. Because once you came through those heads and into the harbour, and once you were dumped on Sarah Island, that was it. Conditions were beyond cruel. 
Because Sarah Island couldn't be farmed, the colony couldn't provide their own food, and so they had to rely on supplies being brought in by ship, a task that couldn't always be accomplished because of the rough seas. Malnutrition and disease were rampant, exacerbated by the hard labour the convicts were expected to perform. Bound by irons and working all hours of the day and night, the convicts sent here were given the task of logging the beautiful old growth forest for the much sought after human pine, as human pine has the remarkable quality in that it doesn't rot, and the British invaders greedily sought this out for their ships. Convicts on the island would purposely commit crimes that they knew carried a death sentence because many would rather die than spend a moment longer of their life on that eight hectare island. But there were others that still had their blood running hot who dreamed of escape. Some did, the more famous being Matthew Brady and James Goodwin, who successfully escaped in 1824 and 28 respectively. But I'm going to talk about the ones who tried it earlier, about the eight who escaped on the 20th of September, 1822. In a move born from a moment's opportunity more than solid planning, eight men who had been tasked with chopping down human pines on the eastern side of Macquarie Harbour quickly and easily decided to overpower the single overseer who was guarding them and make a run for it. Now you might be wondering, why on earth was there only one overseer with one musket to guard eight convicts? Well, simple, because they were on the east. There is nothing but unbelievably thick, dark forest that is near impenetrable on that side, where even the indigenous peoples didn't much venture. And remember, like if the indigenous Australians who know more about this landscape than any other people possible, if they decide that that's not a good place to go, that should give you an idea about how harsh the conditions are. They only had one guard because they thought no one would be foolish enough to try and escape east. At first, they weren't. It seemed that the sudden rebellion, led by the sailor uh, Robert Greenhill and his mate Matthew Travis, had come about because the two of them had planned to use the small boat that had brought them out to row out of Macquarie Harbour through Hell's Gates and then up the coast of Van Diemen's Land to Freedom. But they were at the far end of the harbour, and due to a bungle in the escape attempt, the authorities were now alerted to their intentions and had moved to block the narrow exit. As freedom over the water was now impossible, they turned instead to the land and decided to try the unthinkable, to go directly east through the jungle in an attempt to reach the town of Jericho. The eight didn't have much, a few pots and pans, flint and a Bible. They had two weapons between them. Travis had a knife and Greenhill, he carried an ax. They only had enough food for four days. Now the names of the eight change, depending what sources you come across, and for some of them we don't even know where they were from or why they were transported in the first place, so I'm just going to use the most commonly accepted version. They were, in some ways, rather typical of the type of people that you would find on Sarah's Island. There was, as previously mentioned, Greenhill and Travis, as well as Alexander Dalton, an ex-soldier and a perjurer, John Mather, a Scottish baker and a forger, James Brown, and William Connerly, two elderly convicts, Thomas Bodeham, who we really don't know much about, and Alexandra Pierce, the Irish thief and repeat absconder. This was not in any way Pierce's first escape attempt. 
As Greenhill had been a sailor, he was incredibly skilled at navigation and told the others that by using the stars, he would all walk them due east through the wild stretch of uninhabited land to freedom. As these eight men walked into the bush that afternoon in 1822, I doubt any of them had any idea of what hell awaited them, or the fact that even 200 years later, people would still speak of them in horrified disgust. Within four days, their food ran out. By day eight, they were starving. By 15, they were prepared to do the unthinkable. It had been the old man, Keneally, who had unwittingly suggested it. As they were huddled around a rather pathetic little fire that did nothing to keep out the cold, Keneally remarked that he was so hungry he could eat a piece of a man. Perhaps it was said in jest. Maybe his mind was already there. At any rate, this thread of topic was picked up by Greenhill, who said that he had seen the like of it before and that apparently it tasted very much like pork. When the others asked him what he meant by this, he replied, stone-faced, sober and serious, that it was known as the custom of the sea. You might have heard those stories. When sailors are lost at sea and they have no food or water, they will turn on each other and kill and eat the weakest to survive. Eleven days with no food, exhausted, trekking through unspeakable terrain. They were hungry. They were hungry enough. But it wasn't the weakest who was chosen. It was the most hated. Well, it makes sense. If you're going to do something awful, at the very least, you don't want to do it to someone that you like. Alexandra Dalton had been a flogger and a collaborator back on Sarah Island, a person who earned favour with the authorities by selling out and hurting his fellow convicts. These type of people were easily the most despised, so when it came time to choose, Dalton was the easy option. Early in the morning, Greenhill struck the sleeping Dalton in the back of the head with his axe, killing him instantly. Travis quickly slit his throat and bled him out, and the two of them quickly cut off his clothes and carved him up, cutting out his heart and liver, cooking them and eating them straight away, with the other five men joining in. The next morning, they cut off Dalton's head, then carved up the rest of the body equally between the seven before continuing on east. This, however, proved to be too much for Brown and Keneally. Being the oldest, and therefore the slowest and weakest members of the group, they felt that it would only be a matter of time before they themselves would face the axe. That day, the two of them drifted further and further back until they disappeared into the jungle. Once the others realised what had happened, there was a brief argument about what they should do. Pierce argued that if the two made it back to Sarah Island, then that would seal their fate and they'd be hung for sure. Greenhill didn't seem as concerned about them testifying, as he believed the two old men wouldn't even manage to survive the journey back. Shockingly enough, they did manage to get back to Sarah Island after a 22-day absence, although by the time they stumbled out of the bush they were so far gone from starvation and exhaustion that neither could speak and both died less than a day after they returned. It was reported that when the soldiers searched their bodies, they found scraps of dried meat still in their pockets. 
The remaining five continued on, but it wasn't long before that hunger again rose within them. And this time, it was Thomas Bodeham. Why was he chosen? We don't really know. All we know is that like Dalton, Greenhill struck him down with an axe as he rested by the fire and then set to work on his body in much the same fashion. Do you think it might have been easier the second time? Three weeks in, still no sign of a town or a farm. Still hungry. But this time, something went wrong. Greenhill had determined that the Scottish baker James Mather would be the next victim, but as the fireplace was now the scene of two gruesome murders, no one would sleep near the others anymore. So, to try and get him by surprise, Greenhill decided to kill Mather in the daylight hours, while Mather was attempting to find some sort of edible roots. But, just as Greenhill silently raised the axe behind an unknowing Mather, he moved at the last moment and the axe came down harmlessly to embed itself in the dirt. Within a heartbeat, the two men were grappling and Mather was screaming, murder, murder, causing Travis and Pierce to come running. Soon though, it became all too apparent that Mather was going to be the next one to die, regardless of what he tried to do. Greenhill and Travis were an unbreakable team and Pierce knew that it was either going to be Mather or him. So with three against one, Mather seems to have accepted his fate. He asked for half an hour to prepare himself and requested the Bible from Pierce, who for some bizarre reason was still carrying it. Mather sat praying while the three men stood around him, hungry. When his time was up, Mather handed the Bible back to Pierce. I wonder what moment passed between those two men. Resentment? That because of a simple twist of fate, Greenhill had targeted him rather than Pierce? understanding? Because Mather had been eating his fellow convicts too. Perhaps there was just a knowingly nasty look that simply said, you'll be next, Pierce. Then Mather closed his eyes, lay face down, and Greenhill killed him. With only three men remaining, they finally burst out of the thick jungle and into the wide open plains. Now, regardless of anything else he had done, this alone was an incredible feat of navigation on Greenhill's part, and something that modern-day bushwalkers still won't attempt. Although, considering all the horrible things that have happened there, you can kind of understand why people generally avoid that region. The area the men found themselves in was full of game running wild, unafraid of the rarely seen humans. Easy hunting, if you had a spear or a gun. With an axe and a knife, there isn't a lot you can do. Still, no civilization in sight, and once again they were getting hungry, and Pierce could feel the two breathing down his neck. Then something so mundane happened that in the horror of their trek, no one had even thought about the possibility of it. Travis was bitten by a snake. Greenhill was distraught, and for five days he demanded that Pierce help him half-carry, half-drag Travis along with them in one last desperate push to try and find someone to help them. But by day five, it was clear that they couldn't go on like this, and with Travis's foot now gangrenous, he begged Greenhill to end his suffering. So Greenhill brings the axe down on his friend when he's sleeping. They still eat him, though. 
By this stage, Pierce and Greenhill weren't even bothering to cook the meat anymore. And now, there were two. There was no loyalty between these men, and they were both acutely aware of what was at stake. While the knife had been lost along the way, Greenhill still had the axe, and for the next eight hungry days, a torturous game of cat and mouse played out between them. They walked apart, and at night, neither of them could stand to sleep for fear that the other would end their lives. Beyond exhausted, delirious from the lack of sleep, and hungry beyond reason, the horrific ordeal ended rather abruptly. Just for a second, Greenhill slipped into a light doze. Pierce grabbed his axe and it was all over. Now at the beginning of the story, if you were to take bets, you would have put your money on Greenhill, right? It was his plan. He's the one that instigated the escape, who led the others, who made the first kill, who planned on who would be next. Greenhill was the smartest, hardest, most brutal of the bunch, and logic says that he should have been the one to survive. But it's never survival of the fittest. It doesn't actually work that way. It's not of the smartest. It's not of the most durable. It's the most adaptable. The one who wants it the most. And that was Pierce. He was a monster, no doubt, but he was a survivalist. They had been walking for 42 days, and in that time between them, they had eaten Dalton, Bodaham, Matha, Travis, and lastly Greenhill. That's a life every seven days. Because you see, that's the problem with eating human flesh. We're a lean meat, healthy even, high in protein, but low in carbohydrates. So you know what that means? It's not filling. It doesn't leave you satisfied. And for such a draining journey as the one they took, it is actually utterly unsuitable. Also, it makes you thirsty. So can you imagine you've just committed the unthinkable, the blood is still on your hands, the taste still fresh in your mouth, and, and it wasn't enough. You're still hungry. What would that do to a person? Now, it was just Alexandra Pierce, the sole survivor and the one man of the group who was remembered these days. He continues to go east, and nearly a week after he killed Greenhill, he comes across an empty Aboriginal campsite where some food has been left to cook. He quickly stole that and continued. Finally, he reaches the settled districts, and he finds a farm with a flock of sheep. Without preamble, he catches and eats a lamb raw, and it's in this state that he's discovered by the shepherd. And that's when Pierce's luck finally makes a miraculous U-turn. He knows the shepherd, he's actually friends with the man, and he's quickly taken in and given shelter. All Pierce tells him is that he escaped. He doesn't give any details. For the next few months, Pierce lives as an outlaw, first rustling sheep and then with the bushrangers Davis and Curtin, and it was only then that he was finally picked up by the authorities. By the time he was brought back to Hobart, 
Pierce had been on the run for 113 days. When he was recognised as one of the six still missing from the escape from Sarah Island, the Reverend Robert Knockwood, the magistrate and chaplain, was sent in to get his confession. And surprisingly enough, Pierce told all. Every disgusting, horrifying detail of what had transpired to the five that could not yet be accounted for. And the Reverend simply did not believe him. Knockwood declared that Pierce had made up a fantastical story of cannibalism as a way of throwing off the authorities and covering for his mates who were still alive. They believed that they were hiding out as bushrangers and Pierce was simply trying to give them a bit of extra time to get away. Nothing Pierce said could convince the Reverend otherwise, and after being chastised for telling such tall tales, Knockwood sentenced Pierce to return, once again, to Sarah Island. And history repeated. Fourteen months after his first attempt, Pierce again makes a run for it in November 1823, this time taking a single companion with him, a teenager named Thomas Cox. Things progressed much faster this time. When the two reached the King's River and Cox confessed that he didn't know how to swim, Pierce killed him in a fit of rage and then proceeded to spend the next two days eating his corpse. The soldiers found Pierce resting beside the mangle-bodied of Cox, the meat still fresh on the fire, and this time there was no debate as to whether or not Pierce was lying. And this act did not follow the others. It wasn't for survival. It didn't come from desperation. This time, Pierce was simply hungry for the one thing that he should not be. And this is what has fixed Pierce in our minds as a monster. The premeditated and unnecessary death of young Thomas. If Pierce had any chance of redemption before, that was now well and truly gone. He was quickly arrested and sent to Hobart to face trial. It was an absolute sensation across the colonies when he was put on trial in June in 1824. The courthouse was packed with people eager to see the face of a cannibal, although some were a little disappointed when instead of a hideous monster, they simply saw a man, 34 years old, wiry, short and blue-eyed. As one journalist reported, he did not seem to be someone who was laden down with the weight of human blood and believed to have banqueted on human flesh. The whole proceedings was done very quickly and Pierce was found guilty of the murder and cannibalization of Thomas Cox. He was taken to the gallows at Hobart Town Jail on Monday the 19th of July, 1824 at nine in the morning. When the hangman asked him if he had any final words, it's reported that Pierce answered clearly and without remorse, man's flesh is delicious. It tastes far better than pork or fish. And then he was dropped and his neck snapped. But even death wasn't quite the end for Pierce. Being the first cannibal executed in Van Diemen's land, there was a morbid fascination surrounding him, and the local surgeons asked and were granted the right to perform an autopsy on Pierce's body. I don't know what they were looking for. 
Perhaps some sort of abnormality that could be blamed for Pierce's actions? Ah, well, they were very much more disturbed to find nothing of the sort, that he was a perfectly healthy, ordinary specimen. His head was removed and boiled, leaving behind the skull, which sat filed away in Hobart until many years later, when it was given to the disgustingly racist American researcher Samuel Gordon Morton, who was working on theories of cranology at the time. Morton believed that you could tell someone's intelligence from a person's skull, but his own racist views led to him declaring that white skulls were the best and black skulls were terrible. So how did Morton react to Pierce's skull, a white man who had committed such terrible crimes? Well, easy. Pierce was Irish, so that explained everything. Morton held onto the skull until 1853 when he gifted it to the Academy of Natural Science in Philadelphia. The Academy then gave Pierce's skull to the University of Pennsylvania in uh, 1986, and that's where it stays to this day, sitting on a shelf with a label taped across the crown bearing these words Skull of Pierce, a convict and cannibal who was executed in New South Wales in 18 they didn't even put the exact year he died. While he was executed in 1824, Alexandra Pierce has become a well-known shadowy figure that comes to mind whenever people think of the horrific events that happened all across Van Diemen's land. Let's put it this way, he wasn't the only cannibal that roamed that island, and his acts were by far and large hardly the worst. While the eight were trying to escape Sarah Island, British invaders were already waging a genocidal war against the indigenous people there, now known as the Black War. Massacres, stolen children, abused convicts who'd be locked in small dark rooms until they went mad, corrupt law officials, rape and pillage, all wrapped up on a small dark island at the end of the world with the incredible name of Van Diemen's Land. The history there is so bleak that in 1862, a rebranding effort was launched to try and hide it, starting with the name. Van Diemen's Land was changed to Tasmania. But history like this is hard to forget, and the retelling of Pierce's story has happened again and again in multiple formats. Most recently, Pierce was in the papers again in 2009, when a film about that macabre journey called Van Diemen's Land was so realistic and brutal that it actually caused audience members to throw up in the theatre. And it wasn't because of it, it was hyper-violent. Audiences are used to that. It's because they all knew that what they were watching wasn't just a story. Oh, but we haven't talked about his crime. The original reason Pierce was first sent to Sydney, then Hobart, and finally Sarah Island, the catalyst for all those years of unbelievable horror. Alexandra Pierce had been transported after being found guilty of stealing six pairs of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> 